California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know, there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups, and you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can support the show on our Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 40 episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1. And if you're unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping California Dreaming going, so thank you. I want to quickly take the time to thank you all for your patience in waiting for me to get these episodes out to you. I've got several stories out there that I still need to research and record for all of you which I am diligently working on. I don't want to hold this episode up any longer, so let's dive right into today's story. This is the 149th episode of California Dreaming. It is a vacation series. It is the tale of Matthew Shepard. For this episode, we are headed to the state of Wyoming. It is the 10th largest state by area, but at the same time, it is the least populated state in the country, with a total of a little more than 578,000 people in the entire state. In comparison, California has 39.5 million people, making it the most populated state in the union. So we are going to the complete opposite end of the spectrum here as we take on this story out of Wyoming. One of its nicknames, ironically, is the Equality State. Our story today takes place in the town of Laramie. Population today, about 32,000 people. Matthew Shepard, and I want to make sure that if you look him up, that you spell his last name correctly. It's S-H-E-P-A-R-D. He was born December 1st, 1976, the oldest of two boys to parents Darren and Judy Shepard. His brother Logan came along five years later in 1981. The brothers were very, very close despite the five years between them. Matthew attended Natrona County High School up until about the 10th grade. 
Until then, Matthew had gotten along pretty well with his classmates. But by the time he got into his sophomore and junior years in high school, he was subjected to a great deal of bullying because he was a little bit smaller in stature than the other classmates. In 1994, Matthew's dad, Dennis, had taken a job in Saudi Arabia. So the family packed up and lived there for several years. Matthew attended the American school in Switzerland, and he graduated from there in 1995. He developed an interest in politics and theater, and he took both German and Italian classes. After graduation, Matthew returned to the United States and first went to Catawba College in North Carolina. Then he went to Casper College in Wyoming, where he majored in political science and minored in foreign languages. There was an incident that Matthew had gone through when he was on a school field trip to Morocco. He was attacked, beaten, and sexually assaulted, which would end up having a profound effect on him. He slipped into a depression and often paralyzed by panic attacks. His family and friends continued to worry for Matthew's mental health and well-being out of fear that the depression that he was experiencing would lead him into substance abuse, possibly even suicide. But Matthew kept trudging forward. On the evening of Friday, October 2nd, 1998, Matthew, who was 21 years old at the time, about to turn 22 in 10 days' time. Matthew, along with a friend named Tina Labrie, were at a coffee house in Laramie when he walked up to a limo driver named Doc O'Connor. Matthew introduced himself and told Doc that he was gay and he wanted a ride to a gay bar located one state over in Fort Collins, Colorado. In Laramie, there were no openly gay establishments at the time. Doc told the young man and his friend it was not a problem as long as he would be able to pay for the ride. So they went. Doc made the 70-mile or 112-kilometer drive, waited for him and Tina, and then drove them back to Wyoming when they were done. A couple days later, Matthew called Doc up again wanting to be picked up again. Doc said he was headed to get some lunch. If he wanted to come, he could, and Matthew did. This time, Matthew sat up in the front seat with him, rather than in the back of the limo, as he had done a couple nights earlier. The two of them sat down for lunch and talked for a couple hours that day. Doc was interested in expanding his business by going online. You know, this was on the cusp of everything going digital. He was interested in talking to Matthew because he was so knowledgeable about computers and the like. Matthew opened up a little bit more about his life, that he had basically dropped out of high school because of bullying, and that he lived in Saudi Arabia for a little while. He also told Doc about an incident that happened to him the previous year in the city of Cody, Wyoming, where he was punched in the face by a bartender who accused Matthew of flirting with him. Doc questioned him as to what Matthew did in retaliation when he gets attacked like that. And all he said was he just forgave and carried on. Matthew paid for the lunch that they shared, and then he was taken back home. 
The following day, Doc received another call from Matthew asking about possibly getting a limo ride again that night with some of his friends. Doc had plans, but he said that he would see if he could squeeze them in. Doc spoke to Matthew one more time that afternoon, at which point Matthew said that he'd call him back later that evening. But Doc never heard from him. Matthew never picked up his phone. A couple days later, Doc had stopped by a corner store where he encountered a young woman named Kristen Price, who was only 18 years old at the time and already had a newborn baby. Doc knew her because her boyfriend, a guy named Aaron McKinney, had been his neighbor for a time but had recently moved. McKinney was a bit of a troublemaker, and at this time he was waiting on being sentenced for a burglary that he had been convicted of. Doc asked Kristen about how much time they thought that Aaron was going to get, and she seemed to think that he was going to get probation. But in the interim, it seemed as though Aaron had gotten into a bit more serious trouble. Doc asked what it had to do with, and she told him that they're trying to pin an attempted murder charge on him for beating up a gay guy. Doc kind of brushed it off, thinking that he didn't feel like the state of Wyoming would send someone to jail for attacking a gay guy. What Doc hadn't realized at that point was the gay guy Kristen was talking about was Matthew, the guy that he had given limo rides to previous week or so. Within just a couple hours of that conversation that Doc had with Kristen, cradling her newborn in her arms, a man named Aaron Kreifels was riding a bike along a remote section of town and noticed what he thought to have been a scarecrow tied to a fence along the side of the road. Of course, something didn't look exactly right about what he was seeing. Upon closer inspection, it turned out to not be a scarecrow but it was an actual person who had been beaten unconscious. Though his face was covered in blood, it was clear that the young man had suffered a devastating blow to the head, leaving a huge, gaping wound, which was the source of the blood. The cyclist could see that there were some streaks running down his face, small trails where there was no blood, streaks where the young man's tears had cleared it all away. He also had no shoes on. It was Matthew. And at this point, he was still hanging on, barely. On the evening of Tuesday, October 6th, 1998, Matthew had gone to the fireside lounge located in Laramie. It was there he encountered two young men, Aaron McKinney, and Russell Henderson. They indicated to Matthew that they were gay, but that was just a ruse. As the evening wore on, McKinney and Henderson would eventually offer to take Matthew home, which would explain why Doc had never heard from him. Matthew never made it home. Instead, they drove to a remote location where they launched an attack on Matthew. They robbed him, they beat him about the head with the butt of a gun, they taunted him as they made him beg for his life, they tortured him, and then they proceeded to tie Matthew 
to a nearby barbed wire fence, and they fled the scene. The temperature that night dropped close to freezing, and Matthew would be left there in the cold, bleeding but alive, for about 18 hours before he was discovered by that passing cyclist. From there, McKinney and Henderson headed back to Laramie, where they continued causing trouble that night. And this included getting into a fight with two Hispanic gentlemen, Emiliano Morales and Jeremy Herrera. And this left McKinney and Morales with additional head injuries. Police were called to the scene of this fight, at which point both Henderson and McKinney were taken into custody. Upon searching their vehicle, they discovered a gun covered in blood, a pair of shoes, and a credit card that belonged to one Matthew Shepard. Back at the scene where Matthew was left for dead, the cyclist called for help. The first officer to arrive was Reggie Flutie. She could see that Matthew was alive and desperately needed help but he was covered in blood and she was out of latex gloves. So she made the decision to use her bare hands to clear the blood from his mouth and airway. The following day, the officer who tried to save Matthew was informed that he was indeed HIV positive and that she may have been exposed. She would later go on to test negative. Matthew's parents had no idea either. They found out that he was HIV positive while he lay in a coma. They were still living in Saudi Arabia at the time that their son was attacked. So they had a long way to travel before they would be able to be by Matthew's side. Eventually, Matthew was taken from Laramie to a more advanced trauma facility located in Fort Collins, Colorado. He was found to have numerous fractures about the head and he suffered irreversible damage to his brain stem. This would leave his system unable to regulate his involuntary vital functions, such as breathing and heart rate. He also appeared to have at least 12 or more small cuts on his face and neck, indicative of him having been tortured. Matthew would never come out of the coma. His body gave up six days later on October 12th, 1998, just before one in the morning. Countries around the world held vigils in his honor in the days following the attack, prior to him being pronounced dead at the age of 21. When the limo driver, Doc, had picked up his morning paper on Friday, October 9th, he saw Matthew's picture on the front page. It was then that the realization had washed over him. Kristen was talking about Matthew. And then it suddenly dawned on him as he stood in the parking lot of that convenience store talking to Kristen about the attempted murder charges that McKinney was facing that at that time, Matthew was still hung up on that barbed wire fence. He had not yet been discovered. At the time, Laramie was considered to be one of the nicest, safest places in the country to live. And it may boast a beautiful prairie-like landscape 
farmlands for as far as the eye can see. But the fact of the matter is that the area is teeming with poverty, lack of jobs, and lack of diversity, with at the time 90% of the population being white and nearly a quarter of the population was living below the poverty line. But all in all, the town was considered to be friendly and welcoming. But as people grieved the loss of Matthew's life, there was this feeling that they, the citizens of Laramie, were going to somehow be condemned for what had happened. That this was going to be turned into a political agenda that lobbied for LGBTQ rights. Most people in Laramie at the time would insist that they are absolutely not homophobic. But what they do have are family values. And now the nation and the world were suddenly seeing Laramie, Wyoming as the country's gay bashing capital. If you went around and asked anyone who lived in the town, they'd tell you that Matthew was the very first gay person that they ever met but they never did really meet him. By the time they got to know his name, he was already dead. They'd also tell you that tolerance is more about respect. We can respect the gay community, but they have to respect everyone else for not really getting it because homosexuality clashed with their family values. People were feeling like they had to sympathize with Matthew Because if you didn't, then you're just as bad as the ones who'd attacked him. As it turned out, Laramie was a town that was okay with the LGBTQ community as long as they kept it to themselves. And now, with the news of Matthew's murder making national and international headlines, the town was deeply bothered by the fact that Matthew was now going to become the local poster child for the gay rights movement. This statement was coming from a Laramie resident who was raised Catholic and was taught that homosexuality was caused by a mineral deficiency. Just one level up, and I'm so sorry that this is offensive, that this was the sentiment at the time of Matthew's murder some 22 years ago, that homosexuality was one step up from mental retardation. Most of the religious groups in and around Laramie set aside all of their preconceived notions about homosexuality and held prayers for Matthew and his family. And there was one reverend, along with some of his congregation, that traveled to Laramie from Topeka, Kansas, to picket at his funeral. Nobody in Laramie appreciated that at all. But still the homophobia was still just below the surface. Because the sentiment remained, you can be whoever you want to be, just keep it to yourself. If you let it slip, you could get killed over it. Dennis and Judy Shepard acknowledged their son, Matthew, had struggled most of his life, and this included being somewhat of a sickly child. They were very well aware that Matthew's pain and suffering did not begin the night that he was attacked. It was long before that. 
They knew Matthew carried around a great deal of emotional baggage throughout his life. They wanted it to be clear. He wasn't special, but also happened to be gay. He was special because he was gay. He may not have been completely open about it out of fear, but he was true to himself. He was honest and he was genuine. He had been bullied and taunted throughout school. He was a small person, just about 5 foot 2 inches tall or 1.6 meters and 105 pounds or 47 kilograms. Then he had endured the sexual assault in Morocco. It happened in his senior year in high school. Matthew was having trouble sleeping one night. He walked over to a local coffee house. He started talking to some exchange students from Germany on his way home. They attacked him, and they sexually assaulted him, and they took his shoes. When Matthew reported that attack, the police treated him very well and respectfully, but they were never able to arrest those who were responsible for it. Following the assault, Matthew returned to Saudi Arabia to stay with his parents. He sought therapy and professional help, but he never really was able to get past the anxiety, the nightmares, and the PTSD that he suffered as a result. Matthew's mom said that night in Morocco changed him, and he was never quite the same person anymore. Their biggest fear was that the anxiety and depression would cause Matthew to want to do harm to himself. All they wanted for him was to feel safe again. But he never really got there. His mom said that she felt like his fears were irrational, that there was no reason for him to be afraid of people. So in order to try and counter that in his own mind, he would try to force himself to do something he knew that he shouldn't, just to prove to himself that he could be safe. Matthew knew that people easily saw him as a victim. He was very easily victimized. And he understood that there was little that he could do about it other than endure it, move on, and walk away, hurt but alive. Matthew struggled with bouts of depression and had even considered living in an assisted living program in Colorado while he worked through his mental health struggles. He opted not to do that, instead enrolling at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. That is where both of his parents attended college. Matthew was under the impression that if he stayed in a small town, it would be safer than living in the big city. Matthew did not come out as gay until sometime after high school but he had known for a long time that he was. Looking at magazines and whatnot, he always found himself attracted to the male models, not the female ones. It was difficult for Matthew to come out to his parents too, but he so badly wanted them to know and understand and accept him as he was. He was confident that they would eventually get to that point, but he didn't know how long it would take for them to arrive at a comfortable place with it. In the years prior to his death, he tried in small ways 
to drop hints here or there with his parents. But they either never really picked up on it or they just decided to look the other way. But Matthew's mom said she knew the whole time that he was gay. According to her, Matthew called her in 1995 and came out to her over the phone and she told him that she already knew. And she could tell because girls always develop these little crushes on him and he was really unresponsive to it all. But the girls were attracted to him because he was so very sweet and cute and he treated them so much better than the average guy in school. But telling his dad wasn't going to be as easy as it was telling his mom because he always wanted to win his father's approval. But Judy had told him, so Dennis just waited for Matthew to find a way to open up to him. Judy did readily admit that she was sad that she was not going to be able to have the traditional things that she would have wanted. Matthew getting married and having a wife and having kids. But once it all sank in, she was at peace with it. New traditions would have been on the horizon for the shepherds. According to Matthew's mom, her son was seeing a therapist and he was given a prescription of the antidepressant Effexor and the anti-anxiety drug Clonopin. But Matthew didn't feel as though his therapist understood where his depression stemmed from. Judy was worried about that. With him drinking, along with these medications, it was going to worsen his depression and anxiety. The new semester had just started that fall of 1998. They were only a month into the new academic year when Matthew asked Tina to go with him to that bar in Fort Collins, the one where they had commissioned Doc and his limousine to take them there. Matthew and Tina spent the evening talking about their plans for the future. They talked about things like if something were to happen to Tina and her husband, that Matthew would take care of their children. And if something were to ever happen to him, that he wanted her to take care of his cat. When they got back home that evening, Tina wanted to stay over at his place. She didn't feel like she wanted to let him be alone that night. The following morning, she woke up to Matthew arguing on the phone with his mom because his bank account was overdrawn. She listened as Matthew lost his temper. And Tina had never heard him sound like that before. So it was pretty jarring. Tina had to get back home because her husband wasn't feeling well. She asked Matthew not to do anything to hurt himself and that she'd be back later. Matthew called his mom back the next day and profusely apologized to her for yelling and cursing at her. He promised to try and be more aware of how much he had in the bank. He told his mom that he loved her and that he would talk to her later. Judy Shepard had no idea that that would be the last time she would ever speak to Matthew. That same day, Tina tried to call him, but nobody answered. She was worried about him. There was just something there that was bothering her. She went over to Matthew's apartment and she eventually tracked him down at a restaurant 
But by the next day, whatever it was that her husband had had, she had now had it. So she was feeling pretty sick and ended up staying at home the entire day. She tried calling Matthew again on Tuesday evening but got no answers. She didn't have the energy to go and look for him again, so she went to bed. By the next morning, which was Wednesday, she was still unable to get a hold of Matthew. She was really starting to worry. She wasn't sure what to do next, but she could not just sit idly by. So she made the decision to call the police to see if they would conduct a welfare check on him for her. She was worried about him, that he might be in a state of mind where he could possibly do harm to himself. The officer on the other end of the line asked for the name of the person that she was checking on, and she told them, Matthew Shepard. There was nothing but a dead silence on the other end of the line. And we can only imagine the sinking feeling that Tina was having in that moment. Suddenly, the conversation flipped and the officer began asking her a whole bunch of questions. Questions like, did you know of anybody in Laramie who didn't like Matthew? Tina didn't know what to make of this line of questioning, but she tried as best she could to give the officer any information that could be helpful. Tina was told that they were going to send an officer over to her place to talk. It was in that moment that it began sinking in. Something was terribly wrong. This is not what she called the police for. She didn't want them coming over there looking for her. She wanted them to go looking for Matthew. An officer had arrived and asked more questions. Of particular interest, did she know who Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson were? Tina had no idea who they were talking about. McKinney and Henderson had been taken into custody and charged with kidnapping, attempted murder, and robbery. Matthew was still alive, but he was in a coma that he would never come out of. And once Matthew's body gave up, the charges were then elevated to first-degree murder. And this would come with the possibility of a death sentence. And these two guys, each of them had a girlfriend, and each girlfriend was also arrested and charged with accessories after the fact. McKinney and Henderson's initial story was that they had met Matthew, and they decided to pretend to be gay so that they'd be able to get him to come out to their truck with them, and it was their intention to rob him. But once they were in the truck, Matthew placed his hand on McKinney's thigh, which caused McKinney to fly into a rage, at which point he began attacking Matthew. Two months later, in December of 1998, the girlfriends pleaded guilty of being accessories after the fact to first-degree murder. In April, Russell Henderson decided to plead guilty to kidnapping and murder, which would have taken the death penalty off the table for him. But he also had to testify against Aaron McKinney. When Henderson was sentenced, his attorney insisted that Matthew's sexual orientation had nothing to do with this crime. The intent was to rob him 
find out his address, and then burglarize his home next. Aaron McKinney decided to roll the dice and go to trial, which was slated to take place in October of 1999. His girlfriend testified that they had pretended to be gay so they could rob Matthew, and his attorney tried to argue that this was a quote-unquote gay panic event that McKinney experienced a bout of temporary insanity because Matthew had attempted to make sexual advances. But the judge refused to consider that defense. His attorney insisted the intent was to rob Matthew, never to kill him. The jury would end up finding Aaron McKinney not guilty of premeditated murder, but guilty of felony murder, at which point they began the decision as to whether or not McKinney should be sentenced to death. However, Matthew's parents stepped in and came to an agreement that McKinney should be sentenced to life in prison. Why Matthew had gone to the fireside bar that night, why he went ahead and left the bar with Henderson and McKinney is unknown. Some think that perhaps Matthew was feeling particularly down that night and maybe he just wanted to find some drugs Or perhaps he took an excessive amount of his own prescription medications and he was looking for an escape that night. Perhaps he just happened to let his guard down. Matthew was an incredibly friendly person and he could mingle with just about anybody. None of Matthew's friends thought for a second that he would have been interested in either Henderson or McKinney nor did anyone think that he was out there looking for a hookup. Henderson and McKinney had been playing some games of pool, occasionally making their way over to the bar for another beer, then back to the pool, back to the bar. Eventually, Matthew showed up, and he looked pretty sharp. He was dressed very nicely, and the three men started talking and mingling. And just a little bit past midnight, the three of them left the fireside. About an hour and a half later, Aaron McKinney arrived home, completely out of it, clothing covered in blood. According to his girlfriend, he was very distraught and sick to his stomach. He was crying hysterically and throwing up. His girlfriend tried to help comfort him. She tried to calm him down. She helped him clean up all the while he's telling her that he thinks he's done something terrible. He thinks he's killed somebody. He explained to her that he and Henderson were shooting some pool when a guy came up to them and started flirting with them. At some point, they thought perhaps that they could pretend to be gay and go along with him, but then rob him and his home if possible. Kristen said, They just wanted to teach this gay guy a lesson. Don't be coming on to straight men or else you're going to be hurt. Aaron McKinney told police that once he and Matthew were in the truck, they told him that they weren't gay, that they were lying and that they were going to rob him. Matthew handed over his wallet, but for one reason or another, one of them picked up the gun and began pistol whipping him. From there, the men continued driving down a desolate road, looking for a place to dump Matthew. They had tied Matthew's hands behind his back. They dragged him out of the truck, leaned him up against the barbed wire fence, and tied him to that. 
They took Matthew's shoes because they didn't want him to be able to walk anywhere to get help. As McKinney continued attacking and beating Matthew, as he was bound to that fence, Henderson looked on, amused at what he was witnessing. McKinney admitted that Matthew never actually hit on either him or Henderson, but did confirm that their intentions were to rob him all along. Once they had left the bar, they became worried that Matthew would be able to identify them or their truck, which is the reason why they decided to beat him up. When they left him tied to that fence, both of them were under the assumption that Matthew was dead. From there, they had his information, his identification, which had his address on it. They were next going to go to his place and burglarize his home. But along the way, they encountered those two Hispanic men with whom they got into a physical fight with. McKinney and Henderson had parked their vehicle back in the downtown area of Laramie. And it just so happened at that time, those two men, Jeremy Herrera and Emiliano Morales, They were passing by on foot. They were out that night, too, looking for trouble when the four of them crossed paths. They exchanged words. Their verbal altercation soon turned into a physical fight. At some point, McKinney pistol-whipped Emiliano, causing him a pretty serious wound to his head. But he was able to retaliate by hitting McKinney over the head with some sort of stick or baton that he had concealed in his jacket. Police were called to the scene, at which point McKinney and Henderson fled, leaving their vehicle behind, which contained the evidence linking them to what they would later find out to be Matthew's beating. The evidence included a credit card belonging to Matthew Shepard, a pair of shoes, also identified as belonging to him, and a 357 Magnum covered in Matthew's blood. When McKinney got back to his place and he had lived there with his girlfriend, they, along with Henderson and his girlfriend, attempted to coordinate their stories in order to give each other alibis. McKinney, who had suffered a head injury in the fight following Matthew's beating, needed to go to the hospital, so his girlfriend took him where he was treated for a fracture to his skull. While that was going on, the girlfriends went ahead and helped dispose of the evidence that would have linked McKinney and Henderson to Matthew's beating, which is how they ended up being charged with accessories after the fact. The two women drove to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and got rid of bloody clothing that belonged to Henderson and they hid his shoes in a storage shed at a home that belonged to one of their moms. Police were never really able to ascertain why the shoes were hidden in the shed rather than disposed of in Cheyenne with the clothing. Meanwhile, as Matthew remained tied to that fence, barely alive, it took nearly 18 hours before anyone happened by there and spotted him. It was just a remote area that didn't have very much in the way of traffic. There had been some construction going on nearby, but the crew just so happened to have that day off. Otherwise, Matthew may have been discovered much sooner. It wouldn't be until Aaron Kreifels, the cyclist, was going by on his bike the following evening 
that he happened to see Matthew. And he too may have gone by without noticing him if he had not gotten to an accident along the way and fell off his bike right near where Matthew lay crumpled. When Matthew was brought into the hospital by the ambulance, he was admitted into a room just a few doors down from Aaron McKinney. He had been admitted to the hospital for that skull fracture that he sustained after beating Matthew nearly to death. So the guy who had a hand in Matthew ending up the way that he ended up was just a couple beds away down the hall. Matthew had severe injuries to his brain stem. All involuntary bodily functions were no longer working. He had nearly frozen to death. He had huge marks on his back, all over his arms, his legs, his head, his neck, his face, his groin area, all of it from the beating that he had endured. Some of Matthew's relatives were able to make their way to the hospital before his parents were able to get there from Saudi Arabia. His friend Tina and her husband Paul They got to the hospital on Thursday morning. Matthew's Aunt Roxanne and her boyfriend arrived, having come in from Denver. The media was descending, and they were planning on holding a press conference. But Matthew's aunt and her boyfriend insisted, insisted that they keep Matthew's sexual orientation private. They did not want the press to know that he was gay. And they made it very clear to Tina and Phil, if they revealed to the media that Matthew was gay, that they would make sure that they would not be welcome to see Matthew. Tina did keep that information to herself. And she was able to visit with Matthew as he lay in a coma in the hospital. He was battered and bruised and covered in stitches. And he was being kept alive by machines but she described feeling somewhat at peace with it all, feeling as though he was no longer in this life, on this earth, suffering. Matthew's parents finally arrived in the United States on Friday evening, and they stopped in Minnesota to pick up Matthew's brother, Logan, in order to bring him to The biggest fear was that Matthew would die before they would have a chance to get there to see him. They were told that he was not going to recover from his injuries, but they just needed him to hold on so that they could see him one last time. And when they finally did get there, they too felt an overwhelming sense of peacefulness. His parents felt his presence, but they knew It was only the shell in which he lived on earth. His spirit was gone, and it must have been because God needed him for some reason. Matthew was certainly not the first gay person to be attacked in the United States that year. There had been hundreds of them, and about three dozen deaths. But Matthew's story, for one reason or another, drew the attention of the entire country. Unlike anyone else before him, 
that had been beaten or murdered because of their sexual orientation. And soon Matthew Shepard became a symbol of civil rights for the gay community. Candlelight vigils were held in Matthew's honor across the United States. But Matthew's parents, they were not handling the attention very well that their son's death was garnering. This was something that they very much wanted to mourn in private. But the country, the United States, the world, wasn't having it. They didn't want their son's death to be exploited by the media and they were so afraid of how Matthew was going to be portrayed. Even when then-President Clinton called him up to extend his condolences, they didn't even want to speak to him out of fear, but they ended up taking the call. Matthew had been a strong supporter of Clinton's, and they knew that it would have meant a lot to him that he reached out. Just after midnight, on October 12, 1998, Matthew Shepard's body gave up the fight for life. His parents were never faced with the decision to pull the plug. His body quit on its own. Matthew was remembered as a son, a brother, a friend, not just a gay guy. But, of course, at the same time, there were those select few who sided with McKinney and Henderson, unwilling to set aside the anti-gay, homophobic ideologies in order to allow for Matthew's family and loved ones and the nation to mourn his tragic death. Still unwilling to look past Matthew being gay, unwilling to acknowledge his humanity. Protests were held at Matthew's funeral, Signs that said things like, God is laughing. So, McKinney and Henderson were charged with murder, kidnapping, and robbery. And if convicted, they could get the death penalty in the state of Wyoming. Those who had openly defended the two defendants consistently insisted to the media Had Matthew been a heterosexual male, none of this would be making any sort of news. And what made matters even worse is in trying to spread the blame around as to not place it all on the two people who did this. Word got around that Matthew was HIV positive. And with that, there had been a concerted effort to cast Matthew as the real danger to society, not his killer's. A number of people were thought to have been at risk of being exposed to HIV because of direct contact with Matthew, including the first responding officer who didn't have protective latex gloves when attempting to clear his breathing passage. At least one of the Hispanic men that McKinney and Henderson encountered following the attack because he had been pistol whipped with the same gun that they had pistol whipped Matthew with which was still covered in Matthew's blood. And of course, the two who beat Matthew to death, McKinney and Henderson, they'd all potentially been exposed, so the media said. Of course, we know now that it would not have been possible to contract HIV through this kind of contact. But this was 22 years ago, 
when there was still a certain level of paranoia about HIV. Precautions still needed to be taken, but the defense was going to use this information against Matthew that him being HIV positive and allegedly attempting to initiate a sexual encounter with either McKinney or Henderson or both of them, that Matthew was the one endangering their lives, not the other way around. In addition, supporters of McKinney and Henderson's actions really weren't mincing words when they would speak to the media about the killing. They'd say things like, we don't condone murder. Murder is never the answer, but neither is a homosexual lifestyle. Both are inherently wrong, so they claim to be on the fence about this. That people like Matthew lived a very high-risk lifestyle, that he was a very real danger to society, that it is likely when someone finds out that they are HIV positive that they just don't care about life anymore, and they're no longer concerned with who they infect. They're hopeless They know their lives are over, so they purposely do anything and everything that they can to take as many people out with them. And as far as Laramie, Wyoming was concerned at the time, most people did not believe that there were very many, if any at all, gay or lesbian people living in the area. But when Matthew died, they all seemed to come out of nowhere. Of course, Everything that I've just said in the last minute or so is completely ignorant and false. But it does give us an idea of what the mindset was in small town America when Matthew was murdered. The truth is none of those things that people were saying about HIV was true. And the only way for the LGBTQ community to stand up for Matthew was to come out and not be afraid anymore. They needed to be his voice and staying hidden was not going to do them or Matthew any good. In December, the district attorney announced their decision to seek the death penalty for both McKinney and Henderson, though many wondered if Matthew was around. Is that a thing that he would have wanted for the two men who killed him? In the end, neither one of them were sentenced to death. They were both convicted along with their girlfriends on the lesser charges of accessory after the fact. Today, Aaron McKinney is 44 years old and currently serving out two consecutive life sentences at the Tallahatchie County Correctional Facility in Tutwiler, Mississippi. Russell Henderson is 44 years old and currently serving his life sentence without the possibility of parole in the Wyoming Medium Correctional Facility in Torrington, Wyoming. They'll both die in prison, and McKinney is in Mississippi because of prison overcrowding. At the sentencing, Matthew's mom and dad both had statements prepared to read before the court. Judy Shepard said, I want to thank the court for this opportunity to talk about Matt. I feel I must share with you what Matt's life and death have meant to us. It is important that he be revealed to you as a loving, vibrant, kind young man. You need to see him as we do to try and understand our loss. However, I'm not sure we really understand it ourselves yet. 
Matt would be the first to say that he was not a perfect child. He made mistakes. He experienced many disappointments and many successes. While still in elementary school, Matt became very interested in theater. He joined Stage 3, the local community theater, and was also in many of the local community college performances. In addition, he began to take an interest in politics and current news events. He was quite adept at understanding complex issues and was equally adept at expressing his opinions on those issues. He had such hopes for the future, his future. He was always anxious for the next step, the next stage in his life to begin. Every new step met new challenges, new friends, and new experiences. When Dennis and I made the decision to move to Saudi Arabia, the boys were thrilled. There were no American high schools in Saudi, so all students attended a boarding school following graduation from ninth grade. Matt and his dad chose an American high school in Switzerland to finish Matt's high school career. Matt was so excited to see a different part of the world. He thought this would be such a wonderful opportunity to learn, to learn about cultures and languages and the history of other countries. Not only the country where he would be living, but also the countries of the other students that would be attending that school. He felt these experiences could only help him define his future. All of these experiences opened his eyes and heart even more to the differences in people. He knew that judging, stereotyping, and categorizing people was the loss of an opportunity. He never understood why everyone didn't think that way. He felt there could be nothing better on this earth than another friend. Matt was a good and loyal friend to those who knew him. He was always considerate of their feelings always there to listen and to share and to give whatever he could. He earned their love and respect just as they earned his. I love him more than I can express in this statement. There aren't enough words to describe how much I love him. We shared so much. Late night talks, trying to solve the problems of the world as we understood them, politics, love of movies, both good and bad, theater, books, good food and good conversation. He was my son, my firstborn, and more. He was my friend, my confidant, my constant reminder of how good life can be. And ultimately, How hurtful. I will never understand why anyone would want to hurt Matt. To act with such cruelty, such complete disregard for another human being. It was about 5 a.m. on Thursday, October 8th, when the call came from the Laramie Hospital, advising us of Matt's condition as they knew it. 
there was a nine-hour time difference between Laramie and Saudi Arabia. Every time we could get a call at such an odd hour, my first reaction would be a silent prayer. Please, God, let Matt be all right. This call, he was not. We began an eternal wait to get to Fort Collins, Colorado, where they had taken Matt. We hoped and prayed he would recover from his injuries. We knew he was critically injured and that his hold on life was tenuous at best, but we still hoped. Our highest hope was Matt's complete recovery. Our most basic hope was that he would hold on until we could be with him. We left Saudi Arabia on the first available flight 19 hours after receiving the initial call. The trip seemed to last forever. A six-hour flight to Amsterdam, a six-hour layover, an eight-hour flight to Minneapolis, a two-hour layover, a 90-minute flight to Denver, and then a 90-minute drive to Fort Collins. A 25-hour trip after waiting 19 hours to begin. It was an eternity. An eternity of not knowing if Matt was even alive still. We were unable to check on his condition once we began to travel. When I would think of him, the image that would come to my mind was Matt was alone on the prairie and tied to that fence for 18 hours. When we arrived in Fort Collins late afternoon on Friday, October 9th, we were escorted into Matt's room. What we found was a motionless, unaware young man with his head swathed in bandages and tubes everywhere, enabling his body to hold on to life. We heard the machine help him breathe. We saw the screens monitoring his various vital signs. His face swollen and covered in stitches. His right ear had been stitched, reattached, and was still bleeding. I wasn't even really sure it was Matt. As we approached the bed, I saw that it was my precious son. I could tell by the cute little bump on the top of his left ear. One of his eyes was partially open, and I could see the clear blue color. And who could mistake those long black eyelashes? But the twinkle of life wasn't there anymore. Those braces. I could see his teeth clenching the tubes. And those braces were unmistakably Matthew's. We kissed his face. We stroked his arms. Held his hands and talked to him. We so desperately wanted him to know that we were there. There was some kind of response. He began to shake and his arms and legs went rigid, and we thought maybe he was aware of our presence, but no. It was an involuntary response to touching. And I was thinking, how could anyone feel so threatened by this tiny sweet child that they would do this to him? Such an act of brutality is incomprehensible. Logan, Matt's younger brother, refused to go into the room. He didn't want that image of Matt to be the one that would appear when he would think of his brother. 
He wanted the smiling, laughing, bright-eyed, handsome young face to come to mind. It wasn't long, however, before Logan realized that this was probably the last time he would have to say goodbye. His last chance to say once again, I love you. I'll never forget the look of terror on his face when he first saw Matt. He was trembling. The tears streaming down his face, he went over to the bed. He picked up Matt's hand and put it on his cheek. He asked us if he could be alone. We left the room, but we kept an eye on him using the monitor at the nurse's station. We had to make sure that he was okay. We could see him talking to Matt and holding his hand. By now, we were all painfully aware that Matt would never wake up. We spent the next two days with Matt. Various relatives and family friends and friends of Matt had come to be with us. Sunday night, shortly after having left the hospital close to midnight, we received a call telling us that we needed to return immediately. When we arrived at Matt's room, we were joined by friends and other members of the family. We surrounded his bed, each of us trying to touch him, to hold on, to keep him with us. Each of us thinking that we needed more time. At 12.53 a.m. on Monday, October 12th, Matt was no longer with us. We joined hands, we wept, and prayed over him and for ourselves. There was a kind of relief that Matt was no longer suffering but also the realization that our suffering was just beginning. We did know by this time that two men and their girlfriends had been arrested and were in custody. That gave us an immense sense of hope that those responsible for Matt's death would receive due process and be punished accordingly. What would our lives be like now without Matt? Logan had planned to attend the University of Wyoming, He and Matt were going to share an apartment, both looking forward to the time that they would spend together, getting to know each other once again. That hope was killed. All our hopes for Matt were killed. All the hopes and dreams that were Matt's were killed for $20 and some twisted reason only known to his killers. While Matt was in the hospital, many people concerned about him began to send money to help defray the medical costs. As a family, we decided we would rather use that money to make something positive come from something so completely devoid of humanity. We have started the Matthew Shepard Foundation and are hoping that it will be helpful in encouraging acceptance and embracing diversity. It is one way that we honor our son. How have our lives changed? I can't answer that yet. I know personally that there is a hole in my life. I will never again experience Matt's laugh, his wonderful hugs, his stories, hear about his ambitions for the future. There are days when I think that I can't go on. Then I remember Dennis and Logan our families and friends. I know their love and support will sustain me. 
I know Matt would be very disappointed if I gave up. He would be disappointed in all of us if we gave up. Matt is no longer with us because two men learned that it was okay to hate. Somehow and somewhere, they received the message that the lives of the quote-unquote others are not as worthy of respect and dignity and honor as the lives of quote-unquote us. They were given the impression that society condones or is at least indifferent to violence against the others. They have become a sick society, silent, indifferent, complacent. For those who ask what they can do for Matt and all the other victims of hate, my answer is to educate and bring understanding when you see hate and ignorance. Bring light where you see darkness. Bring freedom where there is fear and begin to heal. Upon reflection, we have discovered that Matt wasn't alone on the fence. His lifelong friends were with him. You may be wondering who these friends were. First, he had the beautiful Wyoming night sky. The same sky we would watch through our backyard telescope. He had the daylight and the sun to shine on him one more time. One more cool, wonderful autumn day in the state that he proudly called home. He heard the wind, the ever-present Wyoming wind, for one last time. And through it all, he was breathing in, for the last time, the smell of the sagebrush and pine drifting down from the snowy mountain range. There was one more friend with him, one that he came to know and love through his youth at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Casper, Wyoming. He had God, and I feel better knowing that he wasn't alone. Okay, dreamers, I took a little bit of a break, and I'm back here to try to finish out this episode I was getting really hard to read through the impact statement, but let's move on to dads. So Matthew's dad, Dennis, also had a statement prepared. It read, I would like to begin my statement by addressing the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, a terrible crime was committed in Laramie 13 months ago. Because of that crime, the reputation of the city of Laramie, the University of Wyoming, the state of Wyoming, became synonymous with gay bashing, hate crimes, and brutality. While some of this reputation may be deserved, it was blown out of proportion by our friends to the media. Yesterday, you, the jury, showed the world that Wyoming and the city of Laramie will not tolerate hate crimes. Yes, this was a hate crime, pure and simple, with the added ingredient of robbery. My son Matthew paid a terrible price to open the eyes of all of us who live in Wyoming, the United States, and the world to the unjust and unnecessary fears, discrimination, and intolerance that members of the gay community face every day. Yesterday's decision by you showed the true courage and made a statement. That statement is is that Wyoming is the equality state. 
that Wyoming will not tolerate discrimination based on sexual orientation. That violence is not the solution. Ladies and gentlemen, you have the respect and admiration of Matthew's family and friends and countless strangers around the world. Be proud of what you have accomplished. You may have prevented another family from losing a son or daughter. Your Honor, I would like to thank you for the dignity and grace with which this trial was conducted. Repeated attempts to distract the court from the purpose of this trial failed because of your attentiveness, knowledge, and willingness to take a stand and make new law in the area of sexual orientation and the quote-unquote gay panic defense. By doing so, you have emphasized that Matthew was a human being with all the rights and responsibilities and protections of any citizen of Wyoming. My son Matthew did not look like a winner. After all, he was small for his age. He was rather uncoordinated, and he wore braces from the age of 13 until the day he died. However, in his all-too-brief life, he proved that he was a winner. My son, a gentle, caring soul, proved that he was as tough as, if not tougher, than anyone I have ever heard or known of. On October 6, 1998, my son tried to show the world that he could win again. On October 12, 1998, my firstborn son and my hero lost. On October 12, my firstborn son and my hero died 50 days before his 22nd birthday. He died quietly, surrounded by family and friends, with his mother and brother holding his hand. All I have left now are the memories. It's hard to put into words how much Matt meant to family and friends and how much they meant to him. Everyone wanted him to succeed because he tried so hard. The spark that he provided to people had to be experienced. He simply made everyone feel better about themselves. Family and friends were his focus. He knew that he always had their support for anything that he wanted to try. Matt's gift was people. He loved being with people, helping people, and making others feel good. The hope of a better world free of harassment and discrimination because a person was different kept him motivated. All his life, he felt the stabs of wrongs people did to him. He still had faith that they would change and become nice. Matt trusted people, perhaps too much. Violence was not a part of his life until his senior year in high school. He would walk into a fight and try to break it up. He was the perfect negotiator. He could get two people talking to each other again as no one else could. Matt loved people and trusted them. He could never understand how one person could hurt another, physically or verbally. They would hurt him, and he would give them another chance. This quality of seeing only good gave him friends around the world. He didn't see size, race, intelligence, sex, religion, or the hundred other things that people use to make choices about people. 
All he saw was the person. All he wanted was to make another person his friend. All he wanted was to make another person feel good. All he wanted was to be accepted as an equal. I loved my son, and as can be seen throughout this statement, was proud of him. He was not my gay son. He was my son who happened to be gay. He was a good-looking, intelligent, caring person. There were the usual arguments, and at times, he was a real pain in the butt. I felt the regrets of a father when he realizes that his son is not a star athlete. But it was replaced with a greater pride when I saw him on stage. The hours that he spent learning his parts, working behind the scenes, and helping made me realize that he actually was an excellent athlete in a more dramatic way because of the different types of physical and mental conditioning required by actors. To this day, I have never figured out how he was able to spend all those hours at the theater during the school year and still have good grades. Because my job involved lots of travel, I never had the same give and take with Matt that Judy had. Our relationship at times was strained, but whenever we had problems, we talked. For example, he was unsure about revealing to me that he was gay. He was afraid that I would reject him immediately, so it took him a while to tell me. By that time, his mother and brother had already been told. One day, he said that he had something to say. I could see that he was nervous, so I asked him if everything was all right. Matt took a deep breath and told me that he was gay. Then he waited for my reaction. I still remember his surprise when I said, yeah, okay, but what is the point of this conversation? And then with that, everything was okay. We went back to a father and son who loved each other. We were father and son, but we were also friends. How do I talk about the loss that I feel every time I think about Matt? How can I describe the empty pit in my heart and in my mind when I think about all the problems that were put into Matt's way that he overcame? No one can understand the sense of pride and accomplishment that I felt every time he reached the mountaintop of another obstacle. No one, including myself, will ever know the frustration and the agony that others put him through because he was different. How many people could be given the problems that Matt was presented with and still succeed as he did? How many would continue to smile, at least on the outside, while crying on the inside to keep others from feeling bad? I now feel very fortunate that I was able to spend some private time with Matt last summer during my vacation from Saudi Arabia. We sat and talked. I told Matt that he was my hero and that he was the toughest man I'd ever known. When I said that, I bowed down to him out of respect for his ability to continue to smile and to keep a positive attitude during all the trial and tribulations that he'd gone through. He just laughed. I told him how proud I was because of what he had accomplished and what he was trying to accomplish. The last thing I said to Matt was that I loved him. And he said that he loved me. That was the last private conversation I ever had with him.
impact on my life, my life will never be the same. I miss Matt terribly. I think about him all the time. At odd moments when some little thing reminds me of him. When I walk by the refrigerator and see the pictures of him and his brother that were always kept on the door. At special times of the year, like the first day of classes at UW, or opening day of sage chicken hunting, I keep wondering almost the same thing that I did when I first saw him in the hospital. What would we have become? How would he have changed his piece of the world to make it better? Impact on my life? I feel a tremendous sense of guilt. Why wasn't I there when he needed me the most? Why didn't I spend more time with him? Why didn't I try to find another type of profession so I could have been available to spend more time with him as he grew? What could I have done to be a better father and friend? How do I get an answer to those questions now? The only one who can answer them is Matt. These questions will be with me for the rest of my life. What makes it worse for me is knowing that his mother and brother will have similar unanswered questions. Impact on my life? In addition to losing my son, I lost my father on November 4, 1998. The stress of the entire affair was too much for him. Dad watched Matt grow up. He taught him how to hunt, fish, camp, ride horses, and love the state of Wyoming. Matt, Logan, Dad, and I would spend two to three weeks camping in the mountains at different times of the year to hunt, to fish, to goof off. Matt learned to cook over an open fire, tell fishing stories about the one that got away, and to drive a truck from my father. Three weeks before Matt went to the fireside bar for the last time, my parents saw Matt in Laramie. In addition, my father tried calling Matt the night that he was beaten, but received no answer. He never got over the guilt of not trying earlier. The additional strain of the hospital vigil, being in the hospital room with Matt when he died, the funeral services, and all the media attention and protesters, and helping Judy clean out Matt's apartment in Laramie a few days later was too much. Three weeks after Matt's death, Dad died. Dad told me after the funeral that he never expected to outlive Matt. The stress and the grief were just too much for him. Impact on my life? How can my life ever be the same again? When Matt was little, I used to take showers with him just to teach him to not be scared of the water. Later, Matt helped me do the same thing with Logan. Anyway, Matt and I would be in the shower spitting mouths full of water at each other or at his mother if he could convince her to come into the bathroom. Then he would laugh and laugh, and we would sing in the shower. I taught him songs. Row, row, row your boat. Brother John, the French version, Frère Jacques, and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Matt would sing loud and clear. Now that voice is silent. The boat has sunk. Jacques is no longer Frere, and Little Star no longer twinkles. 
Matt officially died at 12.53 a.m. on Monday, October 12, 1998, in a hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado. He actually died on the outskirts of Laramie, tied to a fence that Wednesday before. When you beat him, you, Mr. McKinney, with your friend, Mr. Henderson, killed my son. By the end of the beating, his body was just trying to survive. You left him out there by himself, but he wasn't alone. There were lifelong friends with him. Friends that he had grown up with. You're probably wondering who these friends were. First, he had the beautiful night sky with the same stars and moon that we used to look at through a telescope. Then he had the daylight and the sun to shine on him once more. One more cool, wonderful Wyoming autumn. His last day alive in the state that he will always proudly call home. And through it all, he was breathing in for the last time the smell of Wyoming sagebrush and the scent of pine trees from the snowy range. He heard the wind for the last time. He had one more friend with him, one he grew to know through his time in Sunday school. He had God. I feel better knowing he wasn't alone. Matt became a symbol. Some say a martyr, putting a boy next door face on hate crimes. That's fine with me. Matt would be thrilled if his death helped others. On the other hand, your agreement to life without parole has taken yourself out of the spotlight and out of the public eye. It means no drawn-out appeals process, no chance of walking away free due to a technicality, no chance of a lighter sentence due to a merciful jury. Best of all, you won't be a symbol. No years of publicity, no chance of communication, no nothing. Just a miserable future and a more miserable end. It works for me. My son was taught to look at all sides of an issue before making a decision or taking a stand. He learned early when he helped campaign for various political candidates while in grade school and junior high. When he did take a stand, it was based on his best judgment. Such a stand cost him his life when he quietly let it be known that he was gay. He didn't advertise it, but he didn't back away from the issue either. For that, I'll always be proud of him. He showed me that he was a lot more courageous than most people, including myself. Matt knew that there were dangers to being gay, but he accepted that, and he wanted to just get on with his life and his ambition to help others. Matt's beating, hospitalization, and funeral focused worldwide attention on hate. Good is coming out of evil. People have said enough is enough. You screwed up, Mr. McKinney. You made the world realize that a person's lifestyle is not a reason for discrimination, intolerance, persecution, and violence. This is not the 1920s or 30s or 40s or Nazi Germany. My son died because of your ignorance and intolerance. I can't bring him back, but I can do my best to see 
that this never, ever happens to another person or another family again. As I mentioned earlier, my son has become a symbol. A symbol against hate and people like you. A symbol for encouraging respect and individuality, for appreciating that someone is different, for tolerance. I miss my son, but I'm proud to be able to say that he is my son. Mr. McKinney, one final comment before I sit. And this is the reason that I stand before you now. At no time since Matt was found at that fence and taken to the hospital have Judy and I made any statements about our beliefs concerning the death penalty. We felt that that would be an undue influence on any prospective juror. Judy has been quoted by some right-wing groups as being against the death penalty. It has been stated that Matt was against the death penalty. Both of these statements are wrong. We have held family discussions and talked about the death penalty. Matt believed that there were incidents and crimes that justified the death penalty. For example, he and I discussed the horrible death of James Byrd Jr. in Jasper, Texas. It was his opinion that the death penalty should be sought and that no expense be spared to bring those responsible for this murder to justice. Little do we know that that same response would come about involving Matthew. I too believe in the death penalty. I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney. However, this is the time to begin the healing process, to show mercy to someone who refused to show any mercy, to use this as the first step in my own closure about losing Matt. Mr. McKinney, I'm not doing this because of your family. I'm definitely not doing this because of the crass and unwarranted pressures put on by the religious community. If anything, that hardens my resolve to see you die. Mr. McKinney, I'm going to grant you life, as hard as that is for me to do, because of Matthew. Every time you celebrate Christmas, a birthday, or the 4th of July, remember that Matt isn't. Every time you wake up in that prison cell, remember that you had the opportunity and ability to stop your actions that night. Every time you see your cellmate, remember that you had a choice, and now you are living that choice. You robbed me of something very precious, and I will never forgive you for that, Mr. McKinney. I give you life in the memory of the one who no longer lives. May you have a long life, and may you thank Matthew every day for it. Today, Judy and Dennis Shepard continue to advocate for LBGTQ rights, having founded the Matthew Shepard Foundation in 1998. The Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act was finally signed into law by President Obama in 2009, which expanded the existing federal hate crime laws to include crimes motivated by a victim's gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, and disability. To this day, both Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson deny that their crime was motivated by Matthew's sexual orientation.
And that will bring this 149th Vacation Series episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions not only about our show, but any other podcast that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories. We post memes, current events, whatever you like, please come and share. You can also go over to our show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. In the beginning, I forgot to give a few thank yous to patrons. I'd like to thank Michelle S. for joining Patreon, Natalie B., Heather H., Andre W., Mari A., and Donna B., and I would like to thank Rory C and Monique A and Tanya, Ellen C, uh, Sarah S, and Jim M, and Lindsay L for raising up their pledges to the next level. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. With an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, it's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams.